said I woke up to the summer shining through calling on my friends asking what's the move feeling a little different I'm on something no today today I ain't gonna let no clouds get in my way the only road I'm walking is the one I picked catch me sitting in the sun no top of shade today
Good morning, church. It is so good to be here with you. My name's Trey. I'm one of the worship leaders here at Outer West Community Church, and we are very glad that you're here with us this morning. If you're new here, welcome. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning. Would you uh, text the number you see here, new to the number you see here on the screen right behind me? It would just help us connect with you. If you're here joining us online, thank you for being here. Thank you for worshiping with us today. Well, we gather here today with Jesus, who is present and in our midst. And we are here to lift up his name, to worship him. Would you stand, lift up your voice to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, as we sing and give him praise. Shake compassion about 
that's in us. Amen. Amen. We do. We praise. And over the next couple songs, we're going to do something. We're going to declare and proclaim the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news. And so we have this chance to come together and lift up our voices to sing to Him. To put our minds and our hearts on Him. Let's sing. I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. I see His wounds, His hands, His feet, my Savior on the cursed tree. His body bound in drenched in tears. They laid him down in Joseph's tomb. The entrance sealed by heavy storm. Messiah still and all sun shall pierce the night and I will rise among the saints my gaze transfixed on Jesus
so we praise his name, we lift up our voices, we declare praise the Holy One, the Messiah, with your whole heart, with your whole voice, we sing. Yeah. 
guys to raise your voice and sing that song again. Because I think in today's day and age, maybe we sing the chorus again, and we, we treasure a lot, and we cherish a lot, and we fought the throne of sports and entertainment and movies and games and luxuries. But do you understand the meaning? When we sit and we sing, maybe with arms raised high, or maybe not, that we hail King Jesus, 
the king of the universe. Sit for a moment before we take communion and maybe just sing these words again, understanding the gravity and the weight of these words. Our prayer together this morning as a community of faith. Amen. You can have a seat. We're going to transition into a time of communion. As I was thinking about communion this morning, I was thinking about the idea of remembrance. And that's what communion is all about. It's remembering Jesus' sacrifice for us. We've all gone through pivotal moments in life. As I was reflecting this morning, even thinking about 9-11, we all probably remember where we were when we saw the planes or we saw or we heard the news about what was happening. And we can look back and we can remember that. We can look back and we can remember on the loss of a loved one. We can look back and remember our wedding day or birth of a first child or maybe death of a child. And sometimes we just look back as, this, as if it's just like a historical thing. And we don't let that moment, that thing change our current life and our current situation into the future. And that's what I think we do sometimes in the church with communion. We look back and we're like, oh, that was 2,000 plus years ago. And, you know, we do it. We just go through the motions. Maybe you grew up in a church that just go through the motions. You do communion each week. But today I wanted to inform us and remind us of Jesus' sacrifice to impact the way that we go forth from this church today, the way that we interact tomorrow with coworkers or neighbors or roommates. The crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. While we take communion today, we were reminded of that, but it changes the way that you and I live. It changes the way that we interact and love others. It changes the way that we serve at our own expense for someone else. So if you would, if you grab the communion cup and we take the, the bread out and as we take it today, I want you to remember Jesus' sacrifice for you. Remember that moment when you decided to turn your faith into Jesus instead of your own. How does that impact you here today? Or maybe you don't follow Jesus and that's okay. We're, we're glad that you're here and maybe you skipped communion this morning, but maybe you remember all the people that have been praying for you. 
and think and remember the circumstances that brought you here to worship with us in person or online. So let's take the bread together as a community of faith, remembering Jesus' sacrifice for each of us. And likewise, we take the juice, remembering the blood of Jesus poured out for each of us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you and we hail your name. Some of us just need a reminder today of your goodness, that you don't forsake us in the times of difficulty, and that ultimately, God, everything will be okay. Help us to not just look back 2,000 years ago at your death and resurrection, but help us to remember that to inform today and tomorrow and the next day and the next month and the next year. Help us to all grow closer to your name, your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. How are you? Good to see you. Thanks for being here. If this is your first time at Outer West Community Church, we're especially glad that you're here. Um, we weren't going to do this together, but I figured we'd do it together since he was up here and I was up here. But can we give it up for Dan, our amazing executive pastor? He oversees a lot here at our church and that we're grateful that he's here. And we got a special announcement for you and maybe we'll just go back and forth. But if, you were, uh, if you're new to our church, you might not know, but we've only launched about a year and a half ago. And it's been just uh, over a year and a half since we launched as a church. And when we initially launched, when you came to Outer West, we kind of simplified things. And when you came, you said you could serve somewhere, you can attend on a Sunday, or you could join a life group. Now, life groups are the backbone of our church. It's uh, why we do church. Church is, goes beyond just Sundays, but we want to enter into small communities of faith, and we kept it that way. And over the last year and a half, we've been trying to figure out how to shift some of that and introduce some classes and different type of groups and sessions that you guys can enter. And so for the first time at Outer West this fall, we've opened up what we're calling short-term groups. Now, short-term groups do not replace life groups. Life groups are still happening, and short-term groups happen at the same time. But I want to tell you a little bit about the difference between the two. In fact, Dan's going to tell us a little bit about the difference between short-term groups and life groups. And he's been putting a lot of work, and his team has been putting a lot of work into creating this new shift when it comes to our spiritual formation and how we meet together beyond Sundays. Yeah, so, um, you know, as our church has grown in uh, number and attendance, uh, which we thank God for, um, it can be really easy to just focus on Sundays. And you guys and my family and I and Alan's family, we just come here and worship for an hour and then go about our week. Um, but there's a lot of needs and there's a lot of um, depth that happens throughout the week. And so we've put a lot of, as Alan said, effort and energy into our life groups, which are groups of six to 12 people that meet throughout the week. And these are the, these are the way that we care for one another. As a church is growing in size, we look back at the book of Acts and we look at the early church where there was no needs among the early believers because they just shared life together. They prayed for one another. They shared meals. They shared, you know, lawnmowers with one another, if that was a thing back then. But they just shared and did life together. And so one way to make a bigger, growing church smaller is through these life groups. And then we 
added this year, this semester, are short-term groups, which are more classes. And uh, do you want to go through what yeah. they are this semester? Yeah, so we have three short-term groups that we're offering um, this fall. And in fact, all of them launched last week, but you guys can still join. The first one is Grief Share. And Grief Share, they meet um, Sunday afternoons. And this is for anyone that's faced loss uh, in life, and that might be many of us. And it's a place for you to process some of that uh, in community, but also uh, through the lens of the Bible. And so if, you're, if you've gone through loss, uh, if you face that, if you're still experiencing that, if you've gone through it years ago and still have not processed it, Grief Share is the short-term group for you. It'll run for about eight weeks. And again, they're meeting Sunday. So they'll meet today at 3 p.m. right here at the building. The next uh, short-term group, uh, do you want to talk about Boundaries? Yeah, so Boundaries, uh, I mentioned last week, is a wonderful book that maybe some of you have read. It's about 10 or 15 years old. Uh, but all of us, maybe at some point in our life, have struggled with boundaries. How close do we be to the person that's living next to us or the person that's living with us? Or how do I put up um, kind of safe walls between me and another person that maybe doesn't have the health that we have through Christ? And so Boundaries is an amazing way to uh, process together. And that group meets on Tuesday nights, uh, reading this book together, but also processing what does it look like to have healthy relationships with another person. There's this word out there called codependency, and some of us maybe deal with that, or we struggle with this person that maybe has an addiction or un unhealthy habits, and it, it, it impacts us as individuals and as a family. And so boundaries is a wonderful way to have a Christ-centered uh, relationship with other people that you might uh, maybe be too close to or enmeshed with in a counseling term. Yep, and I love the tagline for the boundaries book. It's uh, when to say yes and how to say no. It's all of us need to learn how to do that. And so that's, if that's you, Boundaries Tuesday nights. And the last short-term group, we offer this in the, in the summer and many of you joined. It's called Alpha. Uh, in churches, there's not uh, many times a safe place for people to ask questions about their faith or uh, talk about the doubts that they might have when it comes to God or about Jesus. Alpha, if you're going through that, Alpha is for you. It's a place for you to come and process some of your questions, some of your doubts uh, with community, and it'll be video-based. They have dinner every night, and then it'll be a short time of just talking about some of those things. So if you're interested in that, Alpha meets Thursday nights here at the building as well. So those are three short-term groups that we're launching for the fall, a little different from how we used to do things, but I'm excited for I know many of you have signed up and are excited to go into some classes and study as well. Good. I think that's it. Oh, were you going to talk about elders? Yes, one more announcement for you. Um, as we've grown as a church, as Dan mentioned, we uh, feel like there's a need to add additional elders to our church body. Now, if you don't know what elders are or who they are, uh, well, elders are in charge of caring for our church, uh, counseling, teaching, meeting with them one-on-one. -on -one. In fact, I put a video together that uh, a little a teaching about what a, uh, the responsibilities of an elder are, and you can find that at outerwest.org slash elder nominations. And here at Outer West, we invite you, the church, to nominate elders, and those who you feel like may already be um, playing the role or living out their life as an elder. And so as you pray about it over the coming weeks and months, uh, if someone comes to mind, if God brings someone to mind, you can nominate them by going to outerwest.org slash elder nominations or emailing us at info at outerwest.org. Well, those are the th three announcements, four announcements for us today. You guys happy to be here this morning? You're a little quiet. Happy to be at church. We're going to continue our series called EHS, but before we do that, would you stand up and greet someone next to you, say hi to a neighbor, we'll be back with a few minutes. Watching us online from wherever you're at, thank you for tuning in week in and week out. We love to get to know you, and so if you're interested in meeting any of our staff or our elders, go on outerwest.org hey, to connect with us. Our info is on there. If you want to take next steps, text this number on our screen, and we'd love to connect with you. Most of all, as you're watching online this morning, we hope that this message helps you draw closer to Jesus.
We are in part two of a brand new series that we're calling Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and we kicked it off last week. Um, this is a discipleship course that's based on Pete Cazero's work. He's a pastor for many years out of Queens, New York, and I'm formatting those, uh, that course into sermons for the next uh, seven weeks, and so you want to make sure you come back because each week we'll build upon the previous week. Last week, we set the foundation for what emotionally, emotional unhealth means and how emotional unhealth keeps us from all that God has for us. But this is something that we don't talk about in the church that much. But if you take a moment to think about the teachings of Jesus, you'll see why it's so important for us to talk about emotional health and the connection between our emotions and our spirituality. So take, for example, some of the countercultural teachings of Jesus. And these were countercultural over 2,000 years ago, and I would say just as or even more countercultural today. Like when Jesus said, if someone hits you on one cheek, then turn the other cheek. Think about the emotional barriers attached to that commandment. Or when Jesus says that when uh, you've heard it said that you're supposed to love your friends and hate your enemies, he says, I tell you that you're supposed to love your enemies. Or when Jesus says when someone wants to go one mile with you, then you go an extra mile with them. Or when Jesus says pray for those who are literally trying to kill you. There are some emotional barriers attached to some of these spiritual commandments that Jesus teaches. Or when he says, love your neighbor, love the people on your street, just as you love yourself and your families. The problem for many Christians is that we can't turn the other cheek because some of us are easily offended. There's some emotions beneath the surface that we haven't uncovered that keep us from doing what God has called us to do. The problem for many Christians is that we don't know how to love our enemies because we don't even know how to regulate our anger and our frustration with our own kids, let alone our enemies. They're not even on the radar. Or when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, it's hard for us to do that because at times we're so busy even trying to love them on the roads that we're driving with, on them with. And so there is this level of emotional unhealth that many Christians face. And now in this series, we're not advocating that emotional health is of utmost importance. All we're saying is that our emotional unhealth often keeps us from doing what God has called us to do. Pete in his book shares a story of a woman. Her name is Sheila Walsh. Now, Sheila was a Christian singer. She was prominent uh, in the Christian circles back in the day. She was a singer. She was a writer. And she was a former host of the 700 Club, if you remember what that was. And um, she tells her story about how in 1992, her disconnected spirituality caused her to hit the wall. Here's what she writes. She says, one morning, I was sitting on national television with my nice suit and my inflatable hairdo. But that same night, I was locked in the ward of a psychiatric hospital. It was the kindest thing, she said, that God could have done to me. The very first day in the hospital, the psychiatrist asked me, who are you? And she responded and said, I'm the host of the 700 Club. And he said, no, who are you? And she said, well, I'm a writer. And he says, that's not what I mean. She says, who are you? She says, well, I'm a singer. She says, that's not what I mean. He says, who are you? She says, I have no clue who I am. And he says, that's exactly why you're here. And she continues on and she says this, I measured myself by what other people thought of me. And that was slowly killing me. She said, before I entered and checked into the hospital, some of the 700 Club staff told me, don't do this. You'll never regain any kind of platform. 
If people knew that you were getting counseling and in an institution and on medication, your career is over. And she said, you know what? It's over anyway. So I can't think about that. And she said, I really thought that I lost everything. My house, my salary, my job, everything. But I found my life. She said, I discovered that at my lowest moment of life, that everything that was true about me, who I really was, God already knew. Sheila, she had lived a false self, one that was created by people's expectations of her, her talents, her titles. Her false self made her feel trapped in living a pretend life out of an unhealthy concern for what people think. And this is many of us, and that's why this series is so important for us as a church. And the theme image for this series is the iceberg. Now, if you know anything about an iceberg, I shared this last week, but only 10% of an iceberg is visible to the eye. The remaining 90% lies beneath the surface. And today, the question that I'm asking and the title of my message is, Who are you? Who are you? Who are you beyond the 10%? Who are you beneath the surface? Now, last week, we ended the sermon uh, with some time of uh, contemplation and sitting before God. And I want us to do that uh, right now because I think it's important for us to settle ourselves and invite God as we ask this question, each and every one of us, who am I? So would you get, get yourselves in just a posture of receiving from God? Would you bow your head, sit up straight, uh, bow your head, close your eyes if you need to, if you want to open your hands out? And we call this time contemplative prayer. You can call it whatever you want, but it's simply quiet time with God. Stillness before God. The writer of the psalm says, be still and know that I am God. And we're still before God so that he can reveal areas of our lives that we often hide. We don't just contemplate on our own, but we invite the Holy Spirit to bring to the surface the things that have been hidden. So as we take this moment, would you invite God to help you answer that question? And maybe you just repeat that question to yourselves. Who am I? God, we thank you that you've called us to be your chosen people. But oftentimes there are things beneath the surface that we hide from others and we hide from you. Would you reveal that to us this morning? And as we hear your word, would your word speak to us so clearly? Would you reveal to us the false images, the false version of ourselves that we often present? And would you, live us, would you help us to live in the freedom that you offer as new creations in you? Thank you, Lord. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. And what we just did right here, this is the challenge for us for the rest of the series. For the next two months, we're inviting you and we're challenging you as our church, Outer West, to do this twice a day. And here's what it simply is. Number one, be honest about the things that are hidden beneath the surface. The feelings, the emotions, the insecurities, the anger, the frustrations. 
Be honest about that. And number two, allow God to meet you there. Allow his spirit to reveal those things so he can work in and through you. And we're not just doing this just so we can feel better about ourselves. We can do this so that we can love God, love our neighbors through our authentic and free selves. Not hidden beneath the surface but allowing God to work in and through us in the freedom of who we really are. So this week we're going to dive into the story of someone in the Bible who knew what it was like at one point in his life to be emotionally Healthy. Now last week we looked at the life of King Saul. Saul was the first king of the Israelites. And Saul was a prime example of someone gifted and called by God, but someone that was emotionally unhealthy. And we'll be looking at the life of King David. And what happens between 1 Samuel chapter 15, where we were last week, and 17, uh, there's some things that happen behind the scenes that I want to summarize. And what happens is that because of Saul's disobedience, Remember, Samuel goes to Saul and says, it's better to obey than to sacrifice. Because of Saul's disobedience, God rejects Saul as king. In fact, the Bible says that God regrets making Saul the king of Israel. And what would happen is that God sent Samuel to go and anoint another king, and he would anoint this shepherd boy named David. Now, here's a key important note to be aware of. This is happening behind the scenes. The only people that are aware of this are Samuel, God, David, and his family. As far as the rest of the Israelites are concerned, where we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 17, Saul is still king and David is still a shepherd boy behind the scenes. And in 1 Samuel chapter 17, we find one of the most popular Bible stories of all time. It doesn't matter if you grew up in church or if you didn't grow up in church. And before we go to the verse, let me set up the story for you. What happens is, before, um, uh, in the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 17, there's a battle that's pending between the Israelites and another people group. Now we've heard about how the Israelites fought the Amalekites and other groups that were coming against them. In 1 Samuel 17, they're fighting against the Philistines. And what's happening is the Israelites are camped on one hill and the Philistines are camped on another hill. And there's a valley in the middle. And they're getting ready to battle one another. But what happens is that the Philistines have a secret weapon. And his name is Goliath. Everybody say Goliath. Goliath was their secret weapon. He was a nine-foot-tall trained killer. Over nine-foot-tall, he was a giant. He's like the final boss that you would face in like a video game. And here he is. He's about to come out. And he comes out, the Bible says, for 40 days in the middle of the valley, looking at the Israelites, shouting at them and saying, who can take me on? I'm the mighty Goliath. There's none of you that can take me on. And he says, if anyone can defeat me, then we'll be your servants. But if I defeat the man that steps forward, then you'll be our slaves. And he did this over and over for 40 days, mocking the armies of God and the Israelites. They did nothing about it. Look what happens, 1 Samuel 17, verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Here's a whole nation that's shook because of this man, Goliath. They're at this standstill. Now David, the man we're going to talk about today, he enters the story here. And here's how he enters the story. David has seven siblings. And three of his eldest siblings are part of Saul's army. So they're right there on the hill in front of the battle lines. And David's dad... Jesse sends David because David is the youngest son. He's back home. He's not at war like the men that's at battle. And Jesse, David's dad, says, hey, your brothers are at war. 
Here's some bread and some cheese. Take it to your brothers at war and find out how they're doing and come back and report it to me. So David is like the delivery boy. He's like Uber Eats showing up in the middle of the war. And he shows up with some bread and cheese and he comes and he's trying to find out what's happening. And he sees the scene of the Israelites being afraid and the Philistines on this side. And he asks some questions. And here's where we pick it up, verse 22. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and he shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they fled from him in great fear. So here's the scene again. And David, a shepherd boy, he's not in the military. He hasn't been trained. He sees this. But look what David says when he sees Goliath. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? A powerful statement from David who was not even at war, but he sees and he's saying, who is this guy that's going to stand up to the armies of the living God? you got a warrior like Saul. Wait, we've read about in the chapters before how Saul led the Israelites to victory and overcame nations. You have his commanders, you have his soldiers. All of them are frozen at a standstill, yet David steps up and he's not afraid. Now David, we all know the story. David would go on to accomplish some amazing things. But I want us to look at the story from a different perspective. You see, David would have to overcome some emotional barriers, some pressures before he could do what God had called him to do in that moment. So we're going to look at three pressures that David faced before he's able to take on Goliath. Here's the first one, and I think all of us can relate to some of these pressures, and you might find yourself identifying with one, two, or all three of these pressures. Here's the first pressure that David faced. The first pressure was from his own family, to please his family. Now, sometimes this is hidden beneath the surface, beneath the 90%. Sometimes we're wired to want to please our families. Let's take a look at David's situation here. David shows up, he sees Goliath, and then his brother, Eliab. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. This classic older brother, right, yelling at his younger brother. Why are you here? You're not even supposed to be here. And I love that detail. Where are the few sheep that you're in charge of taking care of? Like, get out of here, David. What are you doing here? Here's the thing about Eliab. He's not just one of the older sons of Jesse. He is the firstborn, the eldest son. So remember, when Saul is rejected as king, Samuel would go on to anoint another king. And God tells Samuel that the king would come from the family of Jesse. And Samuel walks into Jesse's house and sees the firstborn Eliab. And he says, that must be it. He must be the king. He's tall. He's handsome. He's a firstborn. He fits all the criteria. And God says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the inward. And Eliab is rejected. And then Samuel will go on to the next brother and the next brother and the next brother and the next brother. And none of the brothers in the house work out. And he asked Jesse, God told me he was here, so where is he? And then Jesse says, yes, I got one other kid. He's out there running around with the sheep. Let me call him in. And he brings David in. 
And God tells Samuel, that's the king. See, Eliab had witnessed this. He witnessed being rejected and his rejection, and he witnessed David being selected. He witnessed all of it, and so he lashes out at his brother. God already knew there was something going on inside of Eliab's heart, and here it comes out in full fruition to David. But I want to look at the, the response of David to his brother. He says, why are you down here, David? David could have said a couple of things. David could have said, because dad told me to come down here. And then Eliab wouldn't have said anything. Or David could have reminded Eliab. He could have said, you remember when Samuel came to the house and rejected you and picked me? That's why I'm here. He doesn't do any of that. Look what David does. He says, now what have I done, said David? Can I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same manner, and the men answered him as before. He says, now what is it? Eliab had been picking on David before. And then David just turns away in the middle of his brother. Remember what his brother said. You're conceited, you're evil, you just want to come down here. to. David just turns away. You know how secure you have to be emotionally and spiritually to respond to someone that way. When the stakes are so high, to not correct someone that lashes out at you. To not feel like justice is on your side and you could just tell him off because God had anointed you. And this came from David's family. Just put yourself in the context of David. His brother is in the military. David's just delivering some bread and some cheese and he tells him to get out of here. And David just ignores him. And we'll get to the reason why. David could have given in to his brother. He could have given in to the, the voice that came from his brother that said, maybe I'm not supposed to be here. My older brothers are here. They're the ones that are supposed to fight. Maybe God made a mistake in anointing me. Maybe I should just go back to my dad. A lot of us, we succumb to the false version of ourselves at times because of negative voices, and at times those negative voices come from our families. Family pressures are a real thing. We're going to dive into family next week. But all of us have barriers caused by our upbringings, how we were raised, whether good or bad. In David's case, it was a negative voice of his brother. I said, you're just a little kid that watches sheep. You can't take on Goliath. Some of you have had words spoken over you that have shaped who you are today. I remember um, when I was 18, I was studying to be, I was in school my first year, studying to be a physician's assistant, and then I went through this whole journey and told my family that I was going to be entering ministry. Now, in the Indian culture, this is like taboo. You don't quit school, especially if you're try trying to be in the medical field, especially to go be in ministry. And I had some voices in my life that said, what are you doing? My parents are here this morning, so it wasn't my parents. <laughs> some other voices, it really was some other voices in my family that said, what are you doing? Why are you giving this up? Why are you going to ministry? You're not going to make any money. No one's going to marry you. Like, what's the point of all this? And now I can look back and say that was a silly thing, but in the moment, it was everything. It was, it was a big deal for me to step out and do something that meant no one in my family had done before. It was a big deal to step out. David, as his brothers tell him, what are you doing here? Go away. I imagine David 
in that moment, remembering the oil that drips down his head. That Samuel, through God, had anointed him as king. It did not matter what Eliab said to him. Some of you need to know, if who you are because of God shocks some of the people around you, then God might be at work in your life. David knew what God had called him to do. Sometimes it's the people that you're closest with that have some of the most negative voices. But David, I love David because he's so secure. He does not get emotional in the midst and the pressures of family dynamics and the pressure to, to go back and take a step back. But he's got two more obstacles that he needs to face. The first pressure is from family. But look what happens here. The second pressure is the pressure to be someone that he's not. The pressure to be someone else. We pick up in verse 31. What David said was overheard. All this happens. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. And Saul sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. And he has been a warrior from his youth. Another negative voice telling him who he was not. And David would go on. I'm going to summarize here. David would go on to tell Saul, Saul, you have no idea. When I used to watch my sheep, when no one else was looking, there would be bears and lions that would try and come to steal and kill my sheep. And I would strike them down. And if they had them by the mouth, I would open up their mouths and release my sheep and kill these animals. This Philistine that I'm looking at is the same. And he tells this to Saul so boldly and so confidently. And so Saul realized that there's something different about David. And he responds, verse 37, Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Think about who Saul was in this moment. Saul was still king. He had over 300,000 men in his command under him. He's the first in command telling you, okay, if you're going to go fight the battle, I've been through this before. Let me tell you how to do it. Number one, put on my armor. Put on my helmet. And David tries it on. He puts on the armor and he fastens the sword and he walks around and says, this isn't who I am. I'm not used to them. David in that moment felt so much pressure to be someone else. Someone who he was not meant to be. And this is a pressure that all of us face on a daily basis. We all feel the pressure to put on a false version of ourselves. To put on a helmet that's not your size. To hold a sword that you weren't meant to carry. Some of us walk around looking like someone else because we don't know who we truly are. And this impacts so many ways of our lives. Sometimes we're unrecognizable because we look to find love and value and worth in doing so. In doing so, we try to become people that God never wanted us to be. The pressure to wear some things that don't actually fit you. So I want to give you a quick assessment here this morning. And just answer to yourself. If you answer 
three or more and say, I can relate to that, you might need to dig up some th things beneath the surface. You might be dealing with some emotional unhealth. The pressure to be someone else. Answer this, I often need to be approved by others to feel good about myself. I sometimes say yes when I really prefer to say no. I often remain silent in order to avoid conflict. When I make mistakes, I feel like a complete failure. At times, I compromise my own values and principles to avoid looking weak or foolish. My self-image soars with compliments and is crushed by criticism. I do for others at times what they can and should do for themselves. I am fearful and reluctant to take risks. I often go along with what others want rather than rock the boat and shake the boat. I compare myself a lot to others. All of us feel the pressure to be someone that we're not because of insecurity, because of fear, because of frustration. Here's David. He knew himself and he knew, he knew that God had anointed him. He didn't need to listen to his brother. He didn't need to listen to Saul. He didn't need to put on the image and the armor of Saul. It wasn't him. He was so secure in himself and in his God that he rejected putting on a false version of himself. Worship team, you guys can come on up. David had one final pressure before he would accomplish what God calls him to accomplish. He takes off all the armor, the swords, and he picks up a few rocks, and he's got his sling. And here's Goliath in the middle of the valley, and both armies are watching, and David steps in, and Goliath sees him. And here's what Goliath says to David. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Here's a voice, the final voice from Goliath to David. And the pressure he feels in this moment is to feel like he's not good enough. Here's Goliath telling David, do you know who I am? Am I a dog that you're coming at me to fight me with sticks and stones? Do you realize that I'm over nine foot tall, that I've been trained to do this from a young age? You're not a warrior. You're not trained. You're not nine foot tall. You're not as strong as me. And you know what David's response was? Okay. See, David knew who he was, but more importantly, David knew who he was not. He knew he was not Goliath, and that was okay. There is something so freeing in knowing who you are not, because knowing who you are not will allow you to live in who God has called you to be. Knowing who you are not means to put off the false image, the false version of yourself. David knew who he was and who he was not. He knew that he was not a trained soldier like the rest of the army of Israel. But he also knew 
that he was a shepherd and an expert with his slingshot. David knew that he was not Saul that led the armies to victory. But David also knew that he had killed bears and lions before. David knew that he was not recognized by his siblings or recognized as king by the people. But he knew that he was anointed by God to do what God had called him to do. Listen, every single one of us have a unique calling and purpose from God. There's only one you. And God has called you to do something that you cannot do if you're pretending to be someone else or not truly living out who you are because you're afraid of stepping out. You're afraid of saying no. You're afraid of the reaction of others. Think about the pressures that David faced from his brother. Says, who are you? Get out of here. From Saul that said, you're not a trained warrior, David. Put on my stuff and maybe you can win. And then from Goliath says, this is who you sent to fight me. The one thing that David knew was that in the quiet, in the moments when his brothers didn't see, the moments that Goliath didn't see, the moments that the Israelites didn't see, that David would be taking care of sheep, singing songs to God, writing songs that we read all throughout the Psalms, worshiping God. It was his inner life with God that sustained him to do what God had called him to do. And he was confident of that. Every moment that came over him where he felt pressure, David reminded himself of those moments that he was alone with God. And the moment that that oil dripped over his head as Samuel anoints him as king. What would it look like for us to be true to who God called us to be? Not the version that you think you're supposed to be or what culture tells you to be. And some of us don't realize we're living our false self because it's all we've known our whole lives since we're kids. So this is uncomfortable to step out, to change our inner man, to go beneath the 90% and to look at what are the things that have kept me from what God has called me to do because I was afraid, because I was insecure, because I didn't know what the result would be. I didn't know what stepping out would be. And on the other side, some of us put on an image of who we're not, whether it's on social media or the way that we dress. Some of us, our identities are rooted in everything else but God, but the gospel message is this. Your identity does not come from the way you look, the way that you present yourself. Your identity cannot be what you make. Your identity cannot be what you present online to others. Your identity cannot be your titles or the ministry that you do. Your identity, when it comes to Jesus, is that you are deeply loved and forgiven, but also called to do what he's called you to do, which is to put off your former self, to live as new beings, not as a hidden self, not as a self that lives through the Spirit of God, but also faces insecurities, that also deals with anger, that also is still bitter while raising our hands in songs and worship. That's a false version of ourselves because we have not addressed certain parts of ourselves that are holding us back from what God called us to do. Book of Ephesians, Paul writes, 
Put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. May we be people that can break apart from the false image of ourselves. And when we pray the prayer that St. Augustine prayed, God, help me to know my inner man, who I am, so that I can know you and do what you call me to better. Let me pray for us as we close. Jesus, we thank you that we all, many of us here, have gone to church for many years. We've heard the songs, we've heard the sermons, we know the truths about who you are and what you've called, you, called us to. But at the same time, we face insecurities, we face frustrations. We fall into the same sins over and over again. We're still trying to please people by the way that we look. We're still trying to achieve through jobs and titles and money and pressure. We're still living a version of ourselves that you never called us to live. So Jesus, would you help each and every single one of us to take a next step? To make us take a next step to go beneath the surface, to identify the versions of ourselves that we present. Thank you for the life of David, who in the midst of pressures would remember who he was. And later on in his life, as he fails, his heart would continue to lean towards you, that he would come back to you. Say, a broken and contrite heart is what pleases you. May we be people after your heart to put off our old selves daily to die to ourselves to take up our cross as Jesus tells us to die to our flesh to die to our insecurities to die to our emotional baggage to die to the hidden 90% beneath the surface and we bring those things to you and surrender them to you may we live in the freedom that we have access to because the king of the universe, the spirit of God lives in us. May we open up the areas that are hidden to you so that you can work in and through our lives and in and through our church. It's in your precious name we pray. And the church said, amen. Would you stand to your feet? If you need prayer, our prayer partners will be up to the front right and left of the worship center. We're gonna close out and sing this song together as we declare who Jesus is in our lives. We sing. Praise God for all that He has done. Praise Him for He has
We're so glad that you're here with us this morning. If you're new here with us, we'd love for you to join us at Discover, happening right out these doors in the mission room. We'd love to get to know you, answer any questions you might have. If you need prayer, just want to remind you of our prayer partners here against the wall. Church, may we go remembering what God has done for us. Go in peace.